Well, we've had a lot of uh, questions about public health orders and COVID lately. Legally speaking here on CFAX 1070 is where we discuss and benefit from the analysis and insight of Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. I want to say a Merry Christmas Eve and a good morning to Michael Mulligan as always. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be uh, uh, healthy and not in breach of the Public Health Act. Absolutely. But what would happen uh, hypothetically if a person did find themselves in breach of the Public Health Act? We've got fines. What sort of legal authority exists to prevent people from breaching these orders? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I was I was caused me to think about it the other days. I drove past the uh, uh, the health building uh, downtown. Uh, and there was a group of people without masks on outside protesting the fact that people are required to wear masks in some circumstances. Yes. Uh, happily, the group of protesters uh, was outnumbered by the number of signs they had, uh, which is usually a, a sign that uh, a protest of that sort is not exactly catching fire, um, which is, I think, uh, good news for the rest of us. Indeed. Um, so the Public Health Act has a number of provisions that allow for enforcement of orders that go beyond uh, the issuing of fines, which is what's been uh, the principal approach uh, to this point. Um, there is a general provision uh, in Section 48 of the Public Health Act that would allow an application in Supreme Court uh, for uh, there to be an injunction or interim or final injunction issued by the Supreme Court uh, to require uh, compliance with a uh, public health uh, order. Mm -hmm. uh, that might have some application, for example, there have been a number of uh, churches, both the, I think one in Victoria and yes. a few uh, over in the uh, Fraser Valley, uh, who, which have uh, repeatedly refused to uh, abide by public health orders uh, and wh which have uh, uh, insisted upon having in-person services rather than doing them online. Um, and so that might be uh, an example of where uh, that kind of an injunction would be uh, necessary to uh, stop repeated intentional uh, breaches of uh, health orders that put people in jeopardy. Um, if uh, such a, an injunction was granted by the Supreme Court uh, and uh, there was a continued uh, refusal uh, to comply, uh, it would turn into a uh, contempt circumstance where there could be uh, uh, prosecutions for that. Um, there are also uh, provisions in the Public Health Act, Section 49, uh, which is uh, a section that would permit um, uh, an application to be made by a medical health officer with the approval of the uh, public health officer, Bonnie Henry, mm -hmm. um, to a provincial court judge um, if there was a, a circumstance where um, a, a judge could be satisfied that a person was failing to uh, remain in a place or not enter a place in contravention of a medical health uh, order. Mm -hmm. An example of that might be, for example, um, a requirement that somebody self-isolate um, for 14 days if they were traveling internationally, right? Yes. Um, and so the way Section 49 would operate um, is that the provincial court judge would need to be um, satisfied um, that uh, there uh, is a, uh, a danger uh, to public health if a person is not uh, detained, um, and uh, there's a contravention of a, uh, a medical uh, health uh, order. Uh, and if a judge was so satisfied, they would be able to issue a warrant to uh, authorize the apprehension of the person and then to direct uh, 
that they be transported uh, to a place uh, specified by the judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there would then be a, the uh, section of the act provides for a review mechanism. If somebody's then uh, arrested pursuant to that kind of a warrant and you know transported to a, uh, a hotel or some other place where they would be required to isolate, there would then have to be um, uh, an application made as soon as possible, but in any case within seven days uh, to determine whether the person should be uh, continue to be detained in that uh, location. So we do have a re- we do have a legal regime in place which would both uh, allow for general uh, orders and junctions from the Supreme Court to ensure compliance, uh, and we have that specific uh, provision which would deal with the uh, the issue of somebody who's refusing to um, self isolate, for example, following travel, or yes. somebody who was uh, diagnosed and was refusing to remain in quarantine and going out and uh, potentially infecting others, um, th- there is a legal authority to to deal with that uh, under the Act. Um, happily, I should say, and I think this is one of the reasons why we've had uh, better success than in uh, other uh, places. Yes, um, I think there is just a, a, a greater desire to sort of act in a way that uh, is of assistance to your community, and, and maybe that's a function of you know, on Vancouver Island, we're a smaller community than some other places, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the approach which has generally been taken, uh, although there have certainly been fines issued um, where there are repeated breaches, um, you know, we, we've relied uh, essentially on goodwill of people to, you know, not to do things which endanger others. Indeed. Um, and, you know, really at the end of the day, we can't jail everyone. There has to be broad public acceptance and compliance with uh, uh, those kind of uh, orders and re- restrictions. And yes. we've happily, we've seen that here. And that's why, uh, you know, uh, Vancouver Island doesn't look like many parts of California, for example, right? Where Indeed. there's just a huge number of people and their hospitals are, you know, full and uh, that kind of thing, a horrific circumstance. So uh, there are already legal provisions, but happily we haven't had to use them. Um, another thing to mention, and this is, I think, sort of been a topic of uh, discussion in the context of the vaccines becoming approved. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no indication that uh, the uh, provincial government plans to use this legal authority, uh, but people should know that there is legal authority in the Public Health Act, and it's set out in Section 114, that would allow regulations to be passed by the government, right? Yes. Uh, which would uh, require, amongst other things, a person to take a preventative measure. So you, you could actually have a, an order that somebody uh, or, or people generally uh, get vaccinated. That would be permitted, um, although no indication that the government plans to do it. It's just mentioning that there is legal authority to require that uh, in the existing legislation. Uh, there's also in the existing legislation authority in Section 114 sub D, which would allow regulations to be passed by the, the government, which would um, place restrictions or prohibitions on people who have not taken preventative measures, so have not gotten themselves vaccinated, for example, once mm-hmm. that's available, yeah. which would uh, do things including restricting their uh, people's ability who have not taken those kind of measures to enter a place, work with a class of people, uh, or in a class of occupation. Interesting. And so you could imagine that, for example, um, let's say uh, people who were going to be employees in uh, long-term care homes. Yes. Right? You, you could easily imagine saying, look, there's just such a grave risk if people that are living there become infected. We're, we're not going to permit somebody who hasn't taken 
uh, preventative measure to work there. Uh, or you can matter, imagine other uh, restrictions where there could be people put at uh, particular jeopardy uh, or where there might be a higher risk of uh, transmission or uh, infection. So maybe other healthcare workers, that's something that could be considered. Um, or um, you could even imagine things like where there people would be put in a confined space and might be uh, more uh, likely to transmit uh, disease. There is authority to uh, place restrictions on people uh, doing particular kinds of jobs or working with certain uh, you know, vulnerable people, for example, if they haven't chosen to uh, take measures to protect themselves. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defence Lawyers as we continue with Legally Speaking during the second half of our second hour on a Thursday, Christmas Eve, live and serving you as we always do. We'll take a quick break and continue our conversation coming up in just a moment. Stay with us. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070 as we continue our conversation with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Now that we have carefully reviewed Section 114 of the Public Health Act, Michael, is there anything else on this matter upon which we would like to touch before moving on? Uh, no, I suppose other than I'll be keeping my uh, eyes peeled for the uh, uh, anemic group of uh, no-mask uh, protesters to be showing up and uh, protesting uh, uh, that section as well. So keep keep your eyes peeled outside the public health the building in Victoria. Absolutely. Just as long as there's no COVID to spread, I suppose throwing gasoline on a rock doesn't do any harm. It's when <laughs> one throws gasoline on an ember or a spark that things get rough. So as long as we keep COVID out of our community, we'll be safe. I worry about what happens if it becomes more prevalent, though. No, we've been very fortunate here. A lot of places are in much tougher shape than we are in, and that's, I think, a function of really difficult and hard work everyone's been doing to keep their keep their neighbors safe. Also on the docket this week, we talk from time to time about duty. Now, in the plain and ordinary sense, the word duty might mean something different than a legal duty, a duty that someone has. I'm seeing here, what is a duty of honest performance, and how does it relate to a new Supreme Court of Canada case? Yeah, I think this uh, maybe this could be summed up as the uh, principle you would have hoped uh, you would have uh, learned in uh, kindergarten, but I guess they didn't sink in for everyone. Uh, and we've uh, we've seen as a result uh, a development that's been occurring over the past few years from the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, which has to do with how people are required to behave in the context of a contract they have with someone else, um, and. One school of thought would be, well, look, you know, a contract specifies exactly what somebody must do, and I must do exactly that. Let's read the fine print here and find out what I must do. But one of the trends which has been apparent, and this case is the latest, uh, uh, there's a recent case which is the latest example of that. Uh, it's a case out of Ontario uh, that involved uh, a contract to uh, clean snow and do other winter maintenance for a condo building. Um, and In that context, the Supreme Court of Canada dealt with that concept of the duty of honest performance. Now, the fact pattern here is that the the plaintiff, Mr. Callow, um, had a a small property maintenance business, uh, and he had a contract with a uh, condo uh, uh, strata council uh, to uh, do maintenance work. Uh, The winter contract was for clearing away snow and other uh, activity like that, and then he would also get a contract in the summer to do other work on the building. Uh, now, the contract specified, the winter maintenance contract, um, said that the condo uh, company, the condo strata council, would be able to 
cancel the uh, contract on 10 days' notice. So if you read the thing over, you say, okay, very good, 10 days' notice, that's what they can do. What happened, though, is that there was, uh, I guess, some member of the uh, condo had some uh, complaint about the way the snow was cleared. They had a meeting with uh, Mr. Callow. He thought it went well and uh, addressed the concern. But without telling him, uh, the Strata uh, Corporation decided that they were going to cancel his contract uh, the following year, but didn't tell him. Uh, in fact, uh, they kind of strung him along, suggesting that the contract would be renewed and that they were happy with his um, service. Um, he went the extra mile uh, over the uh, summer to do extra work, and then uh, on a 10 days' notice told him right before the following winter season, sorry, your contract is cancelled. Oh. Uh, and so he sued. Yes. Um, and, you know, on, on one level, the, the condo uh, Company, condo uh, strata council would have looked at that and said, well, look, it says right here, 10 days notice, right? Yes. Uh, but uh, the argument uh, made, which ultimately was accepted by the Supreme Court of Canada, um, is that there's an obligation to do more than simply follow the words that are written in the contract. Hmm. And it comes down to that, con- that concept you mentioned, which was the duty of honest performance. Yes. Uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada, the majority uh, concluded that there is this duty, which means that people who make contracts with each other can't do things like lie or mislead one another uh, with respect to how they're going to uh, perform in terms of the obligations of the contract. Um, and the Supreme Court of Canada said, look, that you know, that doesn't mean that a person has to sacrifice their own interests. It doesn't mean that you would have to do more necessarily than what's listed in the contract, but it does mean uh, that you cannot do things like mislead um, somebody else about um, how you're intending to uh, behave. Uh, and the the Supreme Court of Canada, in coming to the conclusion that uh, contracts require this duty of honest performance, and that that can mean uh, things like, you know, a person can't engage in, they described it as things like lies, half-truths, omissions, or even in some cases remaining silent about what they're going to do, mm. um, you, you need to not behave in that fashion. Yes. Um, and one of the interesting things that uh, informed this case uh, is that the, you know, in Canada, we've got uh, two different systems dealing with civil law. We've got, you know, contracts and so on. For all of the, for Canada other than Quebec, we've got the common law system, mm-hmm. and in Quebec they've got the civil law system. Yes. And one of the things which the majority of the judges in the Supreme Court of Canada uh, did in this case is that they, when interpreting what that sort of concept of, uh, you know, honest performance of a contract should mean, uh, they looked at and it, they were informed by this concept of. Abuse of rights, which is a common, which is a framework concept, uh, which exists in the civil law. Interesting. And they found that, you know, what they were doing was not applying the civil law to um, the common law. They're different systems; they're distinct. Yes. But found that that was helpful and informative when deciding, you know, how broad should that duty of honest performance be as part of the common law, which is what we've got in uh, BC and, and most of Canada. Yes. Uh, and so. Uh, that's in part how they came to this uh, conclusion, which is an interesting thing. That you know, it's a, I think probably a, a positive thing, allowing some cross-pollination of good ideas from uh, those two legal traditions. Yes. Uh, and the the takeaway for people is really 
act in an honest fashion, right? Don't mislead somebody or be too sharp in your dealings uh, where you have a contract with somebody, yeah. right? It, it doesn't mean that you've got to sacrifice your own interests, right? But it, it does mean that you can't be uh, acting in a way that's, you know, designed to, you know, telling half-truths and misleading yeah, to trick people, yeah, obviously. Tricking, stringing them yeah. along, oh, yes, oh, yes, we're going to renew your contract, you're, you know, yeah. you're doing a great job. Never mind. Great yeah. Job. Yeah. Oh, by the way, here's your 10 days notice, you're done, yeah. <laughs> right? I see. Uh, and so maybe there's a good uh, Christmas theme there, uh, and perhaps we all should have learned that in uh, in kindergarten, uh, but we all apparently have not. And so uh, you've now got this principle from the uh, Supreme Court of Canada, so uh, act in a decent and reasonable fashion when you're uh, engaged in a contractual relationship with somebody. That's really what that stands for. Always good, a good, good Christmas advice. theme. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. And we've got, I think we have a class action against the province of British Columbia for the practice of holding people in solitary confinement. It says here it's certified. What does that mean again when a class action gets certified? Yeah, what what that means is that um, a, a class action isn't just a matter of, oh, it's a big case or, or something of that sort. Um, if you wish to start a class action, uh, there is a, a test for that and a process to do that. And one of the early steps in a proposed class action is an application to a judge to certify the class action, which is to mean have a judge determine uh, that the claim is an appropriate claim uh, to be a class action, right? Yes. Um, and that would include a number of elements, right? The judge would have to be satisfied that there is a reasonable, you know, there is a cause of action disclosed by the pleadings, right? Yes. That there would be, you know, an identifiable group of two or more people. Uh, and then some more controversial things like, you know, are there common issues, right? You, you don't want to have a class action where every class member is completely different. Uh, we're not saving any time there, right? Yes. You need to have common issues. Um, and then there's some assessment as to whether, a class action would be the preferable procedure to deal with the particular kind of claim. Uh, and then there's an assessment as to whether the uh, proposed representative plaintiff, they call them, the person sort of starting it, mm-hmm. is an appropriate representative plaintiff, right? And there's some elements to that. And so this was an application, or this was a, a claim, uh, proposed claim against the province of British Columbia, uh, and it was brought by a, a woman who had been uh, put into uh, solitary confinement for an extended period of time. Yes, uh, it was somebody who suffered from mental uh, illness, uh, and that made it more difficult for her. Um, according to the um, claim, um, she had spent uh, seven consecutive months uh, in segregation, and then put in medical observation where she was uh, alone for 23 hours a day for another 16 months. Um, and so she was, uh, the claim uh, is a, a claim that uh, that breached a fiduciary duty, a sort of obligation on behalf of the province that amounted to negligence and, and also breached various charter rights. Yes. Um, I must say, I, I smiled a little bit watching or reading the, uh, the way in which the province was resisting the effort to have this uh, certified as a class action. Um, they were spending some time dealing with that first element, which is, you know, do these pleadings show that there is a cause of action here, like a, a, a reason to sue somebody? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that they obviously spent some time on was uh, claiming that the province of British Columbia did not have solitary confinement um, uh, in the provincial correctional system. Hmm. Uh, and uh, they instead, uh, they said, well, uh, they had the province in its correctional system did not have a classification that meets the definition of solitary confinement. Interesting. And, and they said, well, we have instead 
separate confinement. <laughs> so, you know, you're not solitary. <laughs> you're separate. You're separate. It's very different. So, you know, as the, oh. I just had a picture of this poor woman with mental health difficulties sitting oh. in the cell for 23 hours. Say, Don't worry. It's not <sighs> solitary. It's separate. I just... <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, I can just imagine the restraint that must be exercised by members of the judiciary at times when considering some of these arguments. But uh, yeah, yeah but you know, anyway. and nonetheless, it's very carefully reasoned. Oh, yeah. Decision. Oh, yes. Let's look at what separate confinement is. Right. And what, how is that different from solitary <laughs> confinement? Um, you get that and, raised eyebrow from the bench. It's never yeah. good. <laughs> no. It's just, really, Mr. Mulligan? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so uh, the, the judge at the end of the day went through uh, that the analysis that's required and has certified uh, this claim now as a class action. And so what that means is that uh, that uh, person who brought the claim, the woman who spent that time in solitary, well, separate confinement, yes, yes. Uh, will uh, be the representative plaintiff and there will be a, uh, ultimately expect a trial and uh, the decision then uh, would have the impact on people who are in the class as defined by uh, the judge in the certification process. So as part of the certification application, the judge would be defining things like, you know, how would the class be described? You know, who would the uh, potential class members be? That kind of thing. Um, and here it dealt with uh, people who spent at least 15 consecutive days uh, they described as prolonged solitary confinement, uh, or a second group of people, which were described as solitary confinement of people with mental health disorders. Mm, uh, and yes. so they've got these two um, uh, groups. I, I must say, one of the other things that caused me to shake my head, along with the separate confinement argument, the province also made an argument that um, the uh, province uh, uh, shouldn't be responsible for the mental health category of people because inmates' health records, including mental health diagnosis, are kept separate from correctional records, and correctional officers have no access to them, uh, which seems like a, a ponderous state of affairs. People deciding whether to put you into separate confinement would have no access to information about your mental health condition that might indicate that was going to be harmful to you. Yeah. But there is the defense, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, ho hopefully uh, the outcome of these things will be uh, more humane treatment that doesn't cause people who already have uh, major challenges uh, to have uh, have one more. Yeah. Michael Mulligan, we're all out of time. Thank you as always. Merry Christmas Eve to you. We look forward to many more conversations in future. Yes. Merry Christmas and stay safe. All right. Michael Mulligan, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday, including Christmas Eve, right here on CFAX 1070, Legally Speaking.